This is episode number 23 with Simon Vance. Coming up. I think my mother was probably upset with the idea of me losing my posh accent and going to the state system where everybody talked like this. You will still be an actor. You will still do this. This is your dream. Even though I'm going to tell you I'm pregnant. And I'm like, yeah, what? Hmm? Uh, yeah, sure. So that kind of made it even more difficult to give up a well-paying job to become an actor. It, it was very easy to see how slippery, how close we are to, to sort of falling off the edge, as it were, and how often we need to sort of reground ourselves. I'm nervous. I don't know. Am I... You know, is this going to come out right? And I think it it helps as a stimulus to make sure I get it right. If you're looking for what it takes to be an actor long term over the course of your life, then you've come to the right place and you're going to really enjoy today's episode. Perhaps you thought that acting couldn't really be your job, but you still felt it in your soul. It's what you wanted to do. Or maybe you've experienced some huge and life-altering changes and are unsure where it's going to lead. Our guest today went through all of that and has become one of the top performers in his industry, and he continues to push himself. Hey there, my name is Nathan Agan, and this is The Working Actor's Journey, bringing you in-depth conversations with actors that have been working professionally for decades. Hope you're doing well out there. We continue with Season 3, and if you're just joining us, there are over 20 episodes with fantastic actors you'll want to check out. These conversations are meant to inspire and reassure you on your journey that the road may be long and challenging, and that it is ultimately rewarding. Think of these guests like your personal acting mentors. You may not know it yet, but one of them could change your life. We have a new free guide to download. It's called 10 Ways to Stop Worrying and Start Working. Discover the Mindset of Working Actors. Inside this online guide are 10 specific ways you can stop worrying and start working when it comes to being an actor. Hear thoughts, ideas, and advice from those who have been acting 40-plus years, taken from excerpts from past episodes. These guests do not know everything, nor is everything easy for them. They just have been around long enough to have figured out a few things, and they are sharing this with you. Get your copy of the guide now at workingactorsjourney.com slash sign up, and there's also a link in the episode description and on the show notes. Today on the show is actor and narrator Simon Vance. With over a thousand audiobooks recorded in his career, he has narrated such a diverse range of works, from George R.R. Martin and Stieg Larsson's Millennium series, which we discuss, to Brent Weeks and Charles Dickens. He's also focused on getting back in front of the camera as an actor, which we talk about at length because of how much success he's had in audiobooks, and he still wants to explore new territory. We cover a lot of ground here, particularly all the years leading up to audiobook work, which Simon shares is often skipped over in other interviews. And that's exactly why I do this, to talk about as much of the journey as we can, not just the part people might already know. 
Simon's got a wonderful story to share, moving to a new continent, practically not knowing anyone, and having a tough time breaking into the business. And from hearing Simon's audio work, you might not know he's been the wild one of his family, including being part of a rock band at Leeds University. I definitely need to thank Christine Aller, whom you heard on the show talking cash flow for creatives last season, for recommending and connecting me to Simon. Of course, I knew about him as one of the top narrators out there, and I was quite thrilled to have this opportunity to find out more about the man behind the voice. As usual, there's such a fascinating story, and I have even more admiration and respect for Simon's career. So, in today's episode, Simon and I cover what he initially studied at university that didn't work out, all the twists and turns and decisions that led him to a job at BBC Radio, the weekend workshop that really opened his eyes to being an artist, the struggles he faced as an actor when first moving to California, being nervous before starting to record an audiobook, his new challenge of getting better as an on-screen actor in film and TV, and so much more. Simon is wonderfully open about the lack of clarity in his early years, the not knowing, and the challenging relationships. While it hasn't always been easy, he does have some fantastic ideas and insights on what has worked for him along the way. Plus, Simon even shares how he worked on a practically unreadable chapter in his award-winning performance of Alan Moore's Jerusalem, so don't miss that. Now, if you're enjoying these episodes, I want to let you know you can also become a premium member of the show, and there are a number of different perks, including bonus episodes, exclusive opportunities, and more. Members can hear additional conversations with past guests Robert Pine, Don Didwick, Richard Reilly, and Tony winner Reed Burney. Head over to workingactorsjourney.com slash premium to find out more and become a member. A special shout out to those at the co-star level or higher. Adam, Jeff, Robert, Ken, and Ralph. Thrilled that you all are members. So here's a bit more about Simon's journey. After university and the student TV slash radio network, he worked at BBC Radio Brighton, which led to BBC London and Radio 4, the national speech-based network. He found he had a knack for audiobooks by working for the talking book service of the Royal National Institute for the Blind. After moving to the Bay Area, he worked on stage and a bit on camera before finding audiobooks, which eventually really took off. He currently has 16 Audio Awards, including for The Tao of Pooh, Great Expectations, The King's Speech, The Complete Sherlock Holmes, and Alan Moore's Jerusalem. He is also the recipient of 70 Earphone Awards, including for many of the books just mentioned, along with The Wind in the Willows, The Prestige, and Dracula. He was chosen as Booklist Magazine's inaugural Voice of Choice. He is an audiophile magazine Golden Voice, and he is in the Audible Hall of Fame. 
I am really honored to have someone on the show who is so accomplished in audiobooks, especially when it's a medium I'm working in and developing my own skills and career. Simon, like with our past guest and narrator Ray Porter, may set a high bar, but as they say, it's certainly achievable. So here we go with episode number 23. Please enjoy my chat with Simon Vance. I was reading through, um, I think, I guess it was blog articles and maybe some of the videos on your site, and I, I really almost kind of admired and, and very much respected when you would say, like, you know, you would estimate how long a project would take, and then you'd get it, and instead of going back to the client and going, look, this was, you know, this manuscript was three times longer than you said, you know, you would just work through weekends, you would, I, I was just kind of amazed that, that you would kind of put yourself through that to make whatever deadline you had initially agreed to. Well, the difficulty is you're working for many different publishers. If it was one publisher, yeah, I, I, I'd say, well, you know, this is going to push stuff on a little bit. And actually, I have with the book I'm working with now, because the next couple of books are with the same publisher. But, you know, I mean, the one, the classic one, and maybe the one you're referencing, I don't know, was the, was, um, the um, Vampire books and Rice books, because oh, Peng okay. uh, Penguin Random House came to me and said... Uh, this would be about 22 hours, and it was 36. And, of course, the thing is, that's going to move everything. Right. Um, but yeah, I've already committed to other books down the road, and mm. I can't move everybody's book. That's you know, true, yeah. It's just chaotic. So somewhere I've got to make up the time. I mean, ultimately, uh, I think it was okay. And usually, yes, I do go to another publisher and say, can I move a bit? But, you know, it's, it's just the way the work is. And for right. the most part, it's not too bad. I mean, that was one glaring mistake on yeah. the part of the publisher trying to figure out how long the book is. But most of them are, are pretty good. And for the most part, I'm a slightly faster narrator than than the average. So when they say it's a 15-hour book, it's often a 14-hour book for me. Mm, okay, got it, got it. Um, you know, I was also curious, uh, and, and, you know, this kind of leads us into your, you know, beginning years, your early years, but do you consider yourself an expat or are you an American citizen as well? Uh, both, yes. I mean, okay. I'm definitely, uh, I'm an American citizen since 2008. Um, oh, okay. but yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about that, um, apropos nothing really, but some reason it came up in my mind today. Do I consider myself, would my attitude towards America be different if I were just an American citizen or do I, am I slightly more detached? And I don't just mean politics wise, but am I slightly more detached because I am British? I don't know, but uh, I didn't come up with any answers. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I, I was because uh, I imagine or, or I assume that you have uh, mostly an American family at this point, uh, you know, with your wife and, and kids. But do you do you still take holidays or is it the all American approach where you're just cramming in vacation whenever you can? No, actually. Um, yeah, I've got one planned for November. My mother's 91st birthday. Um, I'm going over and visiting a lot of friend of, friends and family. But we actually we're. Um, godparents to a child of my best friend and uh, this child's autistic and we call every sunday afternoon do a skype call oh wow a video skype call with his friends um this couple and and their child he moved back to wokingham uh, just west of london uh, about eight years ago and we've been pretty much consistent with that but he comes over here occasionally and i always visit him when i'm over there 
And they're always, because it's late in the evening, they're drinking beer or something, or they've got a little sherry in their hands. They're going, oh, God, I wish I could come over. Yeah. Or the weather's, you know, it's raining when it's dry here and stuff. So we joke about that. And then a few weeks ago, the jokes went a little too far um, with my wife and myself. When we weren't talking to them, we said, I wonder if we could pop over there, because he had his 65th birthday mm. uh, on a Saturday, and the godparent, godson's birthday was on the Monday. This was the August bank holiday last weekend in August. So three weeks before that, I secretly consulted with his partner, and she said, yeah, yeah, he, we're free. Well, I'll make sure we don't do anything. And she kept it a secret, and we turned up on his doorstep on his birthday. Wow. And we'd flown over. We flew over on the Friday, landed on the Saturday, and we came home on the Tuesday. Oh, geez, wow. That's a quick so, trip. So, yes, I do yeah. go over, and I, I I like to go over. I hadn't been over since last November, which uh, was much longer than normal. Normally, it's every few months, but it's been so busy this year yeah. for both of us, my wife and I, um, that uh, we couldn't uh, find a time to get away. But uh, So I, I, I miss the old country in many ways. I love here. It's fantastic. I wouldn't, you know, people ask me a lot whether I want to move back, and I, I actually don't. I mean, there's a part of me that ideally I'd win the lottery and I'd have a house over in England and a place here, but, you know, it's not going to happen like that. Right, right. So, well, actually, taking that uh, to jump into your early years, you grew up in Brighton um, on the southern coast of England, and as an American and not being familiar with that part of, of England, I'm just curious. So what was it like this idyllic seaside country village? And, you know, what was what was growing up in Brighton like? <laughs> idyllic seaside country village. I don't think it's ever been described like that. It's um, <laughs> no, it's a, it was a, a, a town. It's now part of the city of Brighton and Hove, Brighton and Hove. There's um, it's a, the, the south coast of England is sort of built all the way along. I mean, there's sort of one town runs into the next, and mm -hmm. Brighton and Hove just happened to be matched together, and they've turned, called it now the city of Brighton and Hove. It used to be the borough of Brighton or something, borough of Brighton and Hove. Um, it was um, <laughs> history lesson. It was in the Doomsday Book as Bright Helmston, and then it sort of was a cozy little fishing village for many, 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 many centuries. Um, what brought it to, to prominence was uh, Prince Regent, which would have been about the turn of the 18th, 19th century. Um, he liked Brighton so much, he built a palace down there called the Royal Pavilion. And then everybody in London decided they wanted to move down to Brighton as well. And, and a lot of Regency houses got built. And the house I was born and brought up in was built in 1812. Terraced house. It wasn't anything terribly mm. special. Um, but um, it really is... What I liked about it growing up in the, you know, I was born in the 50s, growing up in the 60s and 70s, it's a very young town compared to a lot of the towns along the seafront, along the along the uh, coast mm -hmm. of the English Channel. Um, a lot of retirement communities communities on the coast, but Brighton was very young, I think partly because of the direct line, the, the railway line, direct roads from London. So um, it's sort of London by the sea. And I think the oh, joke okay. about the Royal Pavilion, the way it looks, is that St. Paul's Cathedral went down to the sea and pupped because it's, it's sort of got an Indian dome on the top of it and stuff like that. Mm. But it also is a very young town itself. So there's a lot of young students in the summer. A lot of um, foreign language students inhabit the town. Uh, it's got a very young vibe about it. Um, so uh, there's a lot of energy in Brighton. It's a great town. I do love it. And and so what uh, what were your parents doing? Well, my father was a doctor, but they, they were both medical people. My mother was a oh. nurse. My father was a doctor. My grandfather, my grandparents were doctors. I think my great-grandparents too. Um, but yeah, my grandparents were 
Irish, but they settled in England and they came over to from Northern Ireland. They, they for one reason or another, I'm not sure quite why, but many years ago, um, they settled in Brighton. My father was born there. My mother came from nearer London, but they met. She was at uh, Westminster Hospital training to be a nurse. My father was at St. Thomas's Hospital, the other side of the Thames, training to be a doctor. And they met and they got married very quickly. And, uh, well, not for any reason. <laughs> I elder brother wasn't born for a good year and a half mm-hmm. but um yeah uh and uh, they settled in my father took over my my uh fa- my grandfather's practice when he died they sh- my grandparents were together doctor and both doctors um and my father became a doctor and um my mother just uh, we became not just was a housewife um and um and also helped my father in in the surgery a lot but she gave up her nursing but she helped him as a receptionist and all sorts around the house um so uh that was that was what we got brought up into um i i certainly in my career wanted uh, didn't actually for a, a second want to go into the medical practice my brother did eventually became a dentist but i mm. was always a little independent, mm-hmm. did different things, one of which involved the Brighton School of Music and Drama. Oh, yeah. Which you can ask me about now, if you like. Is sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah. I mean, and, and, well, I was curious, uh, how many siblings did you have? Were you the middle child, or was there a big, or was it just the two of you? No, I'm the middle one. Elder brother, younger sister. Okay, so the, maybe the, I, I, there, there's something to that middle child uh, syndrome, yeah. right? That that uh, yes. you're not quite the one that uh, everything's expected of, and you're also not the baby. So you know, you that's right. You, you're yeah, freewheeling, yeah. yeah. Protected from above by the elder brother, and um, yeah, protected from below by my younger sister. So yeah, I was uh, definitely a little wilder than either of them. And did uh, and did, what did your sister end up going into? Um, she's been a, uh, she, she, we both actually ended up at the BBC. She, she went to the BBC before I did. Um, she's four years younger than me, but she started as a secretary in the world service. I think she, and she spent her whole career there, um, hmm. pretty much, um, as personal assistants to various important executives and so on and so forth. So she spent her whole career there, but, uh, she's counting down the days to retirement. Hmm. I think it's the middle of next year or something like that, but, uh, yeah. Well, and, and you know, I was just talking to another actor that uh, re- retirement is one of those kind of elusive places <laughs> for uh, actors and narrators. It's uh, it's just like, well, what does that what does that mean? What does that look like? And does it ever happen? Yeah, yeah. Well, and also part of the issue is most of our lives, uh, performers are lousy with money, and I, I really only started making enough to sensibly put stuff aside in the last fifteen years or so, and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the the idea of retirement just doesn't come up, and and partly because I don't want to. I have no no reason to retire. I I enjoy what I do. Right. There's a sort of a fantasy when you meet people who've gone into business and 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 they've been making good money since they began, and uh, they're now retiring and traveling the world. That's an that's an ideal, and it would have been nice to do that. But um, as I say, I was the wild one and never quite settled down until mm-hmm. the you know audio books found me or I found audio books. Right. Okay, so how did you end up at the the Brighton Music and Drama Academy? Oh well, um, my father, the sort of upper middle class, went to public school. We call it public school. You call it private school. Okay. Um, and I, my brother and I, went to a private school, and we were help uh, financed by my grandmother. When she died, we had to leave the private school, 
um, to go into the state system because my parents didn't have enough money. My father was a national health doctor, not a private doctor. He he mm-hmm. preferred to work in the. He was a big believer in the national health service. Um, so uh, private school had a Saturday morning class. So I'd work. We do. We actually had Wednesday afternoons off, but we went into school on Saturday mornings. So if when we left that, I was what seven? No, about nine or ten. My brother would have been about eleven or twelve. Having us home on a Saturday morning was a bit of a pain because <laughs> they got used to the freedom. So they looked around, sure. and I think, and this is a sort of um, class thing. I think my mother was probably upset with the idea of me losing my posh accent and going to the state system where everybody talked like this. So she had these fears of how we'd sound. So she found this um, uh, elocution, these elocution classes mm-hmm. at, the, at the Brighton School of Music and Drama. So we went for an hour for elocution with Mrs. Vonderheide and Mrs. Darlow. And then um, um, because they also had classes in stage technique, they sent us to those. Now, um, I rather took to it. <laughs> um, and so I was about 10 or 11 years old, and uh, I, I must have done that for about four or five years. Not necessarily the elocution lessons, but I did stage technique, and we had, you know, they were acting lessons. Very terrible. It was all kids' stuff, although a mm-hmm. couple of students from there did go on to become, um, you know, quite national actors and still are hmm. um, around the country. But, um, yeah, so I, I loved it, and I can remember I loved it so much, but as we, as I grew older and we were looking at careers and I came from a professional family where you got a proper job. Right. It seemed to me, well, I love acting, but it's not a job for adults. So I mm-hmm. sort of left it behind and my first, um, university course was civil engineering, which can be about, it's about as opposite from acting or performing of any kind, as you can imagine. And, and so, did, well, you know, thinking of acting as, as not a profession that adults do, what, what what dreams and desires did you have as a kid of, of what you wanted to do or what were you inspired to do? Well, it wasn't that long after World War II, which sounds terrible right. now. I'm, yeah. I sound so old. But it was like growing up in the late 50s, early 60s as a kid. Right. There was there was a thing on TV called All Our Yesterdays, which 20 years ago today, mm. so-and-so was invading so-and-so. And I loved air, aircraft. I loved the Spitfire, the Hurricane, the Messerschmitt, the Stuka. And I made models of all these aircraft. And I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted oh, wow. to be in the RAF. Um, and I was actually did join the Air Training Corps, which was a sort of cadet um, RAF, and uh, became a sergeant. Um, um, but uh, I, I was only in it for a few years, but I won awards and, you know, you learn to fire rifles and stuff and actually fly planes. So I got to fly planes when I was wow. 15, which was great. You know, you're given the stick of a chipmunk, a little propeller-driven plane. So I had a lot of fun doing that. There was a little change around the late 60s. We had an American student came over to our equivalent of high school and he talked about the chicago riots that he got caught up in and and how oh god we're bombing vietnam and you join the forces and that's it and that did sort of turn me off a little bit so do i really want to join that do i really want to join a force that might end up bombing people right. you know one's one's useful logic is always a little sort of easy as it were uh, that you know that's absolutely going to happen or something right. but i um i uh so I, I sort of backed off that because uh, part of the deal was that you also signed your life. You signed a contract for 18 years or something. You you went wow. into the RAF and you were in the RAF for 18 years because they paid for your education and everything mm-hmm. like that. Um, 
So that was another thing, because back when you're 16, 18 years is forever. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, God, I don't, don't want to do that. And um, and then, and of course, that also, that's the kind of person I am. I don't always like doing the same thing endlessly. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I, and also my eyesight wasn't good enough in the end. Oh, my eyesight, okay. probably, not that I got tested, but I wore right. glasses shortly right. after that and probably wouldn't have succeeded. You know, I'm thinking of your mother. You were saying she was worried about your accent, but of course she, she, she was okay with you flying planes at 15. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the air training court. You could trust these people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. Um, so, so you, at least going into university, had these ideas of, um, well, civil, you said civil engineering, and w- did you know what career you wanted as a result of those courses? Well, in England, you went with your, it wasn't over here. You don't go in and get credits and then get right, okay. some sort of a mixed bag of a degree of different things, but you have a sort of a focus thing. There it is the degree. The degree is civil, en- civil engineering. Okay. And you had a few things on the side that you did that were courses each year. You could take extra courses, but you didn't have to add up to anything like that but i i did um yeah i did the year of civil engineering funnily enough i also hung out with the drama society which Mm. was a little weird because they were a bit of a clique and they were all you know what do you call them sophomores and stuff we didn't we didn't have those or i didn't think of them in those terms but they were you know second and third years and stuff and we only have three-year courses at university or used to i don't know if it's changed now but it was three years was a degree course so my first year of of that was a very full training it was nine to five every day lectures nine Mm. to five and some heavy work over the weekend well i failed at the end of that year um just because there were there were i think i think there were was it seven no no there were i think there were 10 exams i took at the end of the year five for my civil engineering course five were things like i did a course in philosophy i did other courses i can't remember what they are now but i failed two or three of the five civil engineering exams which meant i couldn't go back the following year without retaking them and it was in the process of that summer when i was restudying that i realized i don't really want to be an engineer why do i want to be an engineer crazy idea um so uh, what might have also influenced me somewhat was i think i mentioned the foreign language students and i had actually met in the uh, earlier that year I'd met some Swedes mm-hmm. and I started learning Swedish and then uh middle of the summer I met a Finnish girl who became my girlfriend for the rest of that year. Uh pen pal you might say, but mm-hmm. we didn't meet up. But it sort of distracted me somewhat. Anyway, <laughs> I uh I went back and I tried to get into the economics and politics department, but the politics people wouldn't look at me, but the economics department said, Yes, we'll take you if you take a year off. Hmm. So, um, and to put, to pin this down, this was 1975. So summer of 75 was when I tried to retake my exams. Um, so the whole of 75, 76, I was going to take off and work in an office because they, they'd take me a year ahead, but I had to find something to do. Hmm. But I had this Finnish girlfriend. So I ended up going to Finland for three months in June, July and August of 76. And I came back and I did economics. Now, what I also did in that time, I had friends at school, high school. Mm-hmm. Um, one friend in particular, Chris Slade, whose father, Keith Slade, was one of the first producers in the BBC local radio station at Brighton. The BBC had expanded into local radio. They were just a national mm-hmm. radio broadcaster, right. TV. Uh, but they did local radio stations in 1968. 
and Chris's dad, so I was 12, 13, and Chris was my best friend at school. Chris's dad was one of the, was the arts producer. Um, so in the time off and in these years, there's a couple of years, I'd go visit him a lot. And I think at the end of 76, after I'd come back from Finland, before I went away to start the new course at university, I can remember now walking into the, the lobby of Radio Brighton and Keith coming down the stairs, the Chris's dad, coming down the stairs, rubbing his hands and saying, oh, Simon, do you, want, do you want to earn a couple of quid? And I said, oh, yes, actually. So we went, he took me around the back to the, that sounds suspicious, doesn't it? No, <laughs> he took me up into one of the, 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 the studios and um, they have reel-to-reel tapes. They're notoriously tight, the BBC accountants. So you mm. reused a lot of tape. So he basically showed me how to um, unpeel all the edits. <laughs> oh, wow. Tape, unpeel them and, and stick the tapes together and make them into big reels, which could then be used. So I did that for a couple of quid. In the meantime, made another friend there, Piers Bishop, who was working there and who was our age as well, Chris, mine. And the three of us hung around a lot together. And the following summer, after I'd done my first year of economics, and I did finish the degree, but after my first year of economics, in the summer, I got a job in a bakery, which is a lot of students did, but I got fired within about a week. I think the, the um, floor manager or whatever, shop steward, took a disliking to me. And I was I was squirting things out of a pastry thing. I can't remember. He said, if that's as fast as you can do it, you might as well not come in on Monday. And I was like, oh, ha, ha. And I walked out, walked in on Monday. And he said, I thought I fired you. Oh, okay. Oh, so I was then, what am I going to do? So I went to see, again, went down to Radio Brighton where my friends were hanging out. And um, I ended up at the end of that summer, summer of 77, on the air. I was, um, I found i had a talent for sitting behind a microphone and doing things so um you know i got trained over the next few years in between my university years i got trained to do a lot of um a lot of the tasks in radio and and in uh, in leeds which is the university i went mm-hmm. to leeds university which is straight up north from london about 180 miles um about as far as you can go without going off the motorway so I could hitch back home quickly if I wanted to. Um, I was uh, I joined the student TV and radio society called Network 4, and we did TV programs which were broadcast around the campus, and we did radio programs in concert with uh, the local radio station, which was BBC Leeds. Um, and I became one year as executive producer for television, which was wow. very exciting, but didn't involve very much. Um, but yeah, so, so that was when I, and of course, I had also done the theatre in the first year. I actually did get cast, unusually for a first year. I got cast in a couple of productions, um, which wasn't, wasn't exactly a wonderful experience. What was it? It was uh, Edward II. Mm, and I, okay. I played two roles. And I think I was on very early and I was on right at the end. And I can remember I used to roll up. We only did the show over one weekend, I think, or two weekends. But I'd, sh- I'd roll up with a, a few bottles of Newcastle brown ale. And I'd sit in the dressing room. And between my first appearance and my second, I'd drink the beer. So the second performance was probably, uh, the second character was probably more interesting <laughs> than the first. But anyway, I kept the whole theatre thing going. Um, and uh, uh, And so I still had this desire. And in fact... I can remember when I was working for Radio Brighton on the afternoon show, 
and we'd have actors in because we had the Theatre Royal in Brighton, which took a lot of London productions. Mm. Actors would come in, and and I'd be asking, so how do you how do you do what you do? And and others, the actors would be saying, but how do you get your job? I want your job. <laughs> um, and I remember one guy, Michael Graham Cox. He was a voice in the original. Um, Lord of the Rings on Radio 4. Oh, okay. I think it's still available. But he, he, he was a voice actor and a stage actor. And he said to me on one occasion, um, not, not on air at this point, we were talking, just chatting. He'd say, he said, um, it, you know, being an actor is like being pulled through a hedge backwards. You don't attempt to be an actor until you've tried everything else you could possibly do. He was trying to put me off mm. because it really is the worst profession to get into. There's no money. It's hard work, and yet I still I still had a hankering despite that. I was very aware of the security I had working for the BBC, and even even as a you know part time worker, uh, finishing off my degree. But um, yeah, I still talk to a lot of actors about doing being an actor full time. Well, and and so all of this you know involvement in theater and and I, I mean I guess there's a couple things because I'm I'm it's a very common thing of like, well, how do your parents react to you wanting to be an actor? Um, and of course you came from a family of doctors, but then I think, well, here you are working for the BBC, which I would assume was a very, uh, respected, uh, organization mm. and, and, and place like that. But so did you ever have these conversations with your parents of, you know, mom, dad, I think I, I'm really enjoying the performance side of things or yes, the, the coming out experience <laughs> with your parents. Um, well, it was interesting. Uh, I did my three year degree course. I finished that with a, with a, an okay degree in economics, but I had no intention of becoming a, an accountant or anything like that or working mm-hmm. in banking. Foolish me, having mentioned, <laughs> I'd have a good retirement if I if I right. had done. But um, uh, no, I just did, I didn't want to do that. Um, I, I'm trying to think straight. I'd also had a rock band while I was in Leeds. I'd oh, got really? A, a bunch of guys together, and and we made sort of vague music. Um, and I think I was considering what am I going to do afterwards? I become a teacher of some sort. I think was was that one of them. Just trying to remember what the things I was thinking of. This is a long time ago, you have to bear in mind, because I'm very old now. Um, it was, uh, yeah, I, I could do a rock band, or I could go back to Radio Brighton, or I don't know what. So I basically hung around in Leeds, and I met somebody who'd worked on the buses for a year, an old student who'd worked on the bus. And I thought, I'll join the bus company. So after I graduated with a degree, I joined the local bus company in Leeds. Hmm. And I was a bus conductor for several months now. My father hadn't been well that year, and he actually died in November of 79, which, mm. um, so this is 1979 we're in. So I just graduated that summer. He died. I went back to Brighton um, briefly. Um, it was a bit of a shock because he was only 54. Wow. Um, I came back to Leeds. I, I drove a bus for about eight months. They were about to make me a one-man operated bus driver, so I wouldn't have needed a conductor, which pays, I think at the time it pay, it could have paid about... Seven thousand pounds a year. It doesn't sound much now, but it was a lot then. Mm-hmm. Um, or I could go back to Brighton and work in local radio as a junior producer and get about six thousand pounds a year. And I thought, oh my god, what am I going to do? If I stay here and be a bus driver, that sounds like good money. I'll be kind of stuck, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have a great, a high opinion of myself and my my my, my ideas of my future. But I, I ended up going back to Brighton and working part-time in the local radio station in Radio Brighton. And 
I think after a few months, a job opening came up, a permanent job opening, which I actually didn't apply for um, because I didn't think I had the qualifications. I didn't think I had the uh, the experience. And the day after the official application date closed, the program organizer, who's like the administrative head of the whole station and runs things and so on, he passed me on the stage and said, Simon, I didn't get an application from you. And I said, well, I, I didn't think I was, you know right for a, for for the role and I mean I'd love to do it but he said well slip me one as soon as you can I'll pretend I found it at the bottom of the drawer so he did there were like 150 people applying for these jobs they were very much sought after and I went through the whole interview process and uh, bingo I got mm. it and that was the beginning of my my official BBC career. Yeah. Oh, it's, it sounds like, at least in the early years, you, you definitely had some people looking out for you, maybe not even um, always intentionally, but uh, that, you know, you, and, I mean, it's easy to say right place at the right time, but, uh, you, you know, you said Chris's father and then, and then this, this, this second gentleman at the BBC that, you know, they, I don't know, they, unlike maybe the pastry guy, uh, the bakery guy, they, they took a shine to you that, uh, you know, there was something yeah. about your, um, I guess your would you say your uh, abilities or your drive that uh, they were they connected with or were you just easy yes. to get along with? Well, I, I, a number of those things. It's really interesting you bring that up, and I, I, I mean I'm I'm aware of this, but putting it all together I, for a long time for, for many years I've been aware of of Neil Gaiman's uh, mm-hmm. three legs to his stool. That if you if you're going to succeed in a job, there are three things you need, and you don't actually need all three. You can get by on two of them. One is uh, be pleasant to work with. One is do really good work. Uh, one is to be efficient. Mm. So you could be really nice, uh, to work, really good to work with and be efficient, but actually not actually that brilliant, and people will still employ you. If you're brilliant and you produce the work on time, you don't even have to be likable. I mean, it's great. You, you know, if you take those three and juggle them, right. you'll work it out. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but um, I think there might be that may be part of it because I've been ve- I have been very fortunate. And and something else came up as well, which which is along the same lines as this. Somebody said, I can't remember who it is, some famous actor or, or, or professional artist of some sort. He said, people keep asking me, how do you get uh, an agent? How do you, what pen do you use? What do you, and, right, and the important yeah. thing is to do the work. As long as you do the work, it will come to you somehow. I mean, that's. That's easy for me to say, and I understand some people might argue with that and say, you know, I've been working hard at it for years and it hasn't happened to me. But there is a sort of an openness you have to have, Mm -hmm. a willingness to go where you need to go, to do the work that needs to be done. But I think it gets recognized and people like you and people. And yes, there's a lot of proactivity needed these days. Um, Mm -hmm. It's the thing I'm finding, I'm sure we'll get to it at some point, that the, the need to be proactive. And my difficulty is for most of my life, I haven't needed to be proactive i have been mm-hmm. active i do everything i'm required to do and i think i do it pretty well um but i've never been one to push myself which mm-hmm. seems to be the extra step you need these days more than sure, just sure but I, I like to think that even now if you do the work if you get the work done and you do it well um and obviously a little talent helps and so on um then you're going to get recognized and somehow you will find your path well, and I, and I like the the point you said about just kind of your your openness, your energy, because I think it, it can be a trap to fall into of, of doing the work, and then perhaps the energy you're putting out is you might be resentful that it hasn't happened yet, and and mm-hmm. that that leads to maybe a more closed off energy, even if it's not something you're conscious of. That's subconsciously what you're well, putting out there. 
yeah, I mean, it's that, that thing of the why. What, the why of it. Why are you doing it? A big trap people fall into is I'm doing it to get... I'm doing the audition to get the job. I'm mm. doing this to get an audition. I'm doing this to get this. And that, yes, that sometimes works. <laughs> but that leads to an awful lot of frustration, especially if you go through, you know, months of not getting any work. And mm. actors do, you know, and they can go years between one series and the next, successful actors. And, and if you do it just for the job, then you're you're opening yourself up to that frustration and i think you're giving off the wrong vibes i mean it's the one i'm i used to fall into that you go into the casting director's office and you or or i mean i didn't do a lot of <laughs> didn't do any tv before i came to la but i i i did a lot of theater over the years and you go to the casting um you know mm-hmm. presentations or whatever and you'd be thinking what are they looking for what do they want what do i have to do to please you and it's a long journey to discover that they don't want they don't even know what they want half the time. They, mm-hmm. they, I mean, they know it when they see it, but every time somebody walks in, they want you to be the one. And, and you know, I'm li- I listen to, um, I take classes with uh, at BGB Studios here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which is a, a casting director, Risa Brayman Garcia, and her colleague, Steve Braun. And, um, and she's always very keen on this. You don't, don't uh, go in there with that in mind. You, you, it's all about you. Be yourself. Um, and be open and be receptive. They want to see you. They want to see your humanity, your vulnerability. And I think that covers so many, you know, so much in performance that uh, that matters. It's it's not about the neediness. That's mm-hmm. something I think that has to be learned over a period of time. But um, and I, I think I have been fortunate in that I just, uh, yes, I happen to have been in the right place at the right time. But why? Why was I in the right place at the right time? And And why was I ready in the right place at the right time? Because I've been doing the work. Mm. Yeah, no, uh, it's just a great conversation to have because I think uh, sometimes these these points are overlooked. Um, so, and and I just wanted to kind of uh, highlight that because it, it, there was something, at least to me, that seemed to be recurring, and, and it sounded like it's something you've been conscious of uh, over the years too. And 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 the, the Neil Gaiman uh, stool idea, I think, is really crystallizes it well. Um, yeah. So you 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 know you get this kind of more official job at uh, the BBC and is that what took you to London? Uh Yeah, ultimately, I mean, uh, at the same time Keith Slade who was still there, I, yeah. I worked as his assistant and actually stood in for him when he took he often took August off. So I'd be the arts producer of Radio Brighton. I go interview I interview some wonderful actors in London. I go and sit mm. at, at film premieres and interview directors oh, wow. like Ridley Scott and Franco Zeffirelli and people like that. It was great fun. Um, so I got to hang around with creative people, which was a lot of fun. Um, the BBC has a system called attachments. I don't think they still do, but it, it means you can, even though you've got this job, you can actually spend six months doing that job, which may be completely different. Hmm. Um, and it sort of helps them out if they've got a shortage in a particular department and they'll say, and they'll advertise an attachment. Also, if they're looking for a permanent position, they'll probably put an attachment up and see try somebody out so it's something like that so i i did an attachment to bbc radio 4 um just a quick uh update radio 1 2 3 and 4 are the national networks in england or they were 30 years ago 50 40 years ago mm-hmm. um one is pop music two is light music light pop music three is classical music radio 4 was the speech-based network which mm-hmm. did the news the plays all the drama all the comedy shows um 
and uh, that was the one I had always listened to. Again, you see, somehow I'd done the work without realizing I'd done the work because I used to wake up to Radio 4 in the mornings before going to school because mm-hmm. I had a really good news program and I loved current affairs. So from, you know, wake up in the morning at 7 o'clock, have my breakfast and out the door. So I knew Radio 4 um, and I loved it. And as it happens, my friend Keith's son, Chris, had actually gone to Radio 4 before me. He did that a couple of years before I did. And I saw, so I was sort of following him. Um, but he'd moved on by the time I went to Radio 4. He'd gone into TV by that time, I think, um, or at least moved out to the West Country. Um, but I did Radio 4. Uh, yeah, I got in there for three months, uh, three or six months at the beginning of 1983, and I ended up staying there for, for about nine years, which was uh, just a glorious experience. And I, I sort of miss it. Um, that said, along the way, I became aware that this was sort of a bit two-dimensional. Mm. There were two things actually happened. Um, and without you move, asking the question, I'm going to move on to <laughs> audiobooks. <laughs> See, I take control. You have to watch that. Because, you know, right, well, I, I, may, I may circle back to a couple of things, but okay, go, go right ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'll just touch on them because they, they led on to other things. Sure. But one was that um, before I moved to Radio 4, Chris was up there in London. I visited him in his flat in London. Uh, had a small basement flat in Knightsbridge, which sounds very fancy, but it was a bit, it was very small. Um, and he had a book on his uh, hall table, a big old thick tome with a lot of little like post-it notes or markers in in the pages. And I, I picked it up and said, what's all this about? And he said, um, oh, I do books for the blind at the Royal National Institute for the Blind's Talking Book Service. You know, I just go in there once a week and I read for a few hours and they record it and that's what I do. I, so, that happened, and you can ask me about mm-hmm. that later and where that yeah. led. You might have a clue. The sure, other yeah. thing is that, um, yeah, when I was at Brighton, actually, it was just before I left Brighton, I did about three plays with Keith Slade. He was also directing theatre, hmm. and I did three amateur plays. There's a big difference in England between amateur shows and um, professional theatre. When amateur shows, you rehearse for three months and you perform for one weekend. But it's like community theatre. Oh, okay. Um, so it's very similar to that. But there's no there's no crossover between amateur and professional. There wasn't mm. in the old days. But so I kept up the whole acting thing. So I was doing that. And when I was at Radio 4, there's a place that actors can go and study uh, in London. There are probably a couple of places, but this one was well-known, the Actors' uh, Centre. Mm-hmm. Um, as actually the Actors' Institute, which also led to something else. But the Actors' Centre, um, and because I, uh, it's for members of equity only. Now, because I was a radio person, I could join equity. Um, and in England, it's just the one union. You don't have the three or the two that you have here, SAG, right. after and equity. It's just equity. So I was able to go to these classes. So I took acting classes at the same time as I was being a Radio 4 newsreader and presenter. I was doing day-long acting classes with actors and directors who were working wow. in the West End or working in TV. So I worked with a lot of, uh, you know, I got taught by a lot of um, extraordinarily good people. So again, all these things are still happening for me. Things are still going on. So, And, and was it was it for fun? I mean, because, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, uh, here's this situation where as a kid, you were listening to this national program uh, in the morning and then suddenly you're on that, you know, radio, uh, you know, network and 
to some that might be like, okay, you've, you know, you, you hit this dream and, you know, do you have this idea of, I want to be a lifelong, I mean, I know you said eventually it became two dimensional, but were you thinking you wanted to stay in, in journalism and news or, or as you were taking these classes, there was this, you know, m snowball kind of effect of like, yeah, I really think this is where my, my life is headed. Did you, did you have that sense of clarity at the time? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no clarity whatsoever. Um, it was basically, what do I enjoy doing? Let me do more of it and okay. keep doing it. Um, the, um, well, the actor's center was extremely useful. Uh, it was all for fun, and mm -hmm. I just loved it. I did, uh, I also did Alexander Technique. They also had some mm. voice lessons and all kinds of things that I loved doing. Um, I think what happened, I also got married my first marriage in, at the end of 84, which didn't last very long, got, got a kind of bad within a year or two. And uh, yeah, it, it, I separated in 86. And I think it was in that summer I was doing the books because I'd, I'd actually, within a year of getting to London, I had all this time on my hands. I was working weekends and overnight shifts, which meant I held odd times off. Mm. I didn't really know that many people in London, so I wanted something to do. So I actually then applied to the RNIB to do talking books, and they accepted me. So every afternoon from then on, I wow. did books. Um, and you'd have a, you do an hour, take a coffee break, tea break, and do another hour or whatever. Uh, it's about three hours you were there in all. Um, so the tea break in the, in the, the green room, as it were, uh, there were a lot of actors from the West End, not, not big names or anything, because this was sort of charity work. Mm -hmm. but, um, but it was fun to do. And there were a lot of other, uh, BBC types, uh, on air presenters and stuff. And one of them turned to me and said, so are you an actor? Uh, and in my mind, I can remember this vividly. This sort of flash went off, and I, because I was officially a Radio Four presenter, mm -hmm. um, but I, in my mind, this thing went, uh, "No, I'm not, but I want to be." Mm. And I described it to my friend shortly after as the sort of the, the I can't remember even the biblical reference now, but it was the the flash on the road to Damascus or something. I think okay. that was the thing, you know, where whoosh, suddenly you know what you want to do. Um, and I called up my friend who was also called Simon, who was a, an artistic director at Farnham, the artistic director at Farnham Rep, just outside of London. And I said, Simon, I'm going to come over with a lump of cheese and a bottle of wine and we're going to sit on Hampstead Heath and you're going to dissuade me from being an actor. <laughs> Well, we did a few of those things. He never dissuaded me from being an actor. We did sit and look down on London and discuss life, the universe and everything. He pointed me towards a place called the Actors Institute, which did a sort of, it was um, based in, uh, a few people have been to SLN on the West Coast here and uh, mm -hmm. worked on those sort of getting in touch with your creative soul. And um, there was a thing called a mastery, which is a weekend workshop. And I did that. And it was eye-opening of a sort of it's it's okay to be an artist because i think i said earlier on in our conversation here that um you know i was professional and being an actor wasn't for grown-up people right and and i think that made me realize it, it doesn't matter that <laughs> that whether i consider it's grown-up people or not it's essential for my soul that mm -hmm. i um throw myself into this and it was at that point when i said you know no i'm going i i'm not an actor but i'm going to be um or I am an actor, but I'm going to do it more professionally at some point, sure. which was the problem, because I was in a very well-paid job. Um, I was going through divorce, so it was probably a bad time to start changing things too drastically. Mm -hmm. Right. But in the event, um, yeah, that was the beginning of a connection with the Actors Institute, and, I was still, and they did a lot of workshops on, on sort of the soul and all this sort of, you know, sort of creative energy and stuff like that, which I found very inspiring. 
very inspiring. And it's not to say that people that go into more traditional professions like uh, doctors or lawyers or, or things like that, that it's not that they may, in their soul, want to do those things. But y you do wonder how many people, like yourself, feel like, well, I can't, I can't do that thing. That's that's not what grown-ups do. That's not what adults do. And how many how many people hold themselves back, um, mm. even from just pursuing any kind of creative hobby, uh, because they just think that, well, no, that's not what I, that's not what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Well, the fascinating thing about this this mastery workshop was it wasn't just for actors; it was for everybody. Mm. And and I remember the first evening. It was a Friday evening, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Friday evening, driving back through London to my home. And because of being in this room and having to open up to each other, I'd never done that before. I mean, even as a, an amateur actor, mm. it was never, you know, it was basically getting up, reciting the lines and moving in the right place. And it felt good. Um, this was about opening up honestly and being vulnerable. And it wasn't just actors. It was accountants and secretaries and, and mm. you know, wow. teachers and stuff. And I remember going home in my car for the first time being very aware that each of these other cars had people in them. And not just people. I mean, they had energy in them. There was sort of that, I don't want to get too sort of woo-woo, but right. there was a sort of, oh, there are people surrounding me. Instead of getting in my car and driving home and being, got to get home, got to get home, what's on TV tonight? It was like, oh, my God, there's a life. There are lives out there. People mm. are living lives. These are real people, and they all have feelings. And, and it, it was, um, you know, not directly connected with acting as much as just awaking that right. that part of the personality of, of the person, you know. And I think it was, it was great that it was wasn't just actors mm -hmm. it was for everybody who was you know too shy in the job place and stuff like that it was sort of a chance to open up did you ever have a conversation with your parents and i know your your dad died young but or your your siblings of you know their i mean did they ever pursue creativity in their own way well um in terms of my parents i mean i my mother you know it was such a gradual thing me being an actor and i think she's yeah. as a child she always enjoyed my outward outwardness which somewhat clashed with my brother and to be honest without going too deeply into it it's caused some friction between my brother and me over the years and there have been years where we haven't spoken because of the you know there's a sort of a whether it's it's based in envy or what i'm not sure but the fact as we talked about the elder brother tends to shield the younger brother from from the slings and arrows of outrageous yeah. fortune and he had to suffer them and i didn't in a, in a way, and I can see that he sees that. So that's that's caused some tension over the years. So my sister, she's fine. She's you know, she loves watching me or hearing me or whatever. So um, she she's we we've always got on pretty well. Uh, but yes, it has caused some some friction. But um, you know, it's I, I, as a child, I was always the one to sort of jump off waterfalls, go canoeing, go rappelling, right. climb cliffs and stuff. And, and my brother never. I don't know that he didn't want to, but he never did. Yeah. You know, I was, sure. I was a Boy Scout. I flew planes. I did this. I did that. And, and, and in a sense, I took a lot of risks. It's what I, I tend to do. I sort of jump in, um, or back, more often back into things and suddenly go, Oh my God, what am I doing here? I better do something. Mm. Um, and that, uh, and, and instead of protecting myself, um, and staying in my little black box, which is what I'm in right now talking to you in. <laughs> So there's a part of me that likes being a little black box, but there's also a part of me that wants to get out and, and, and fly. Right. Um, and I think that's, that puts me in difficult positions and it can be painful and it's huge ups and downs, but is it, uh, 
Khalil Gibran in the uh, Prophet, you know, talks about the the the, the dips and the uh, the up bits and the down bits, and you've got to have a deep a deep down to be able to fill it with joy. And I think that's sort of what I've experienced over the years. And I, it can get pretty dark, and I've gone through depression. And maybe Professor will get to that in a minute. Oh my! <laughs> Are you my therapist? I forget which. I don't know one or the other. Anyway, but we'll we'll get there. <laughs> I know the 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 lines also uh, often get blurred when we talk about careers. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I, I was very curious, you know, doing all of the the re- readings for the, the books for the blind, did you feel like, did you have a, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, obviously, your technique has grown over the years, but at that time, did you feel like you knew what you were doing, or looking back, were you just reading versus narrating? Could you tell the difference then? Um, that's a good question. I mean, that's, because um, it's one I try to answer myself. Uh, I mean, just quickly to the present day, I, I, I'm not, I don't tend to coach a lot mm-hmm. because I don't know exactly, or I, I'm I'm learning. Um, I don't know exactly what it is I do. Oh, okay. Why Why am I getting it right in terms of audiobooks? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Uh, uh, and and uh, you know we can touch back on this later on because it, it really comes to play when I'm talking about comes into play when I'm talking about um, doing theater or TV and film or sort of intimate mm-hmm. acting where I'm sure. I'm trying really hard to get it right with audiobooks. I've never had to try to get it right for some reason. It's been very casual. Um, I was a good reader when I was a child. I was a very good sight reader. Um, this was clear. They did tests in school when you were 10, 11 years old, reading ability. And I was always a couple of years ahead of, of, of the, of the average. Um, so I've never had a problem. I had a, one of my friends, uh, I remember used to talk on the phone, um, and when we were 15, 16, and she said, Oh, I love listening to your voice. And then, and we, we were never boyfriend, girlfriend. So she wasn't trying to chat me up mm-hmm. as far as I know, but she was, she was very complimentary about my voice. And it was like, Oh, you know, interesting. So, you know, maybe all that gets filed away in the mind and, right. and comes out later on. But, um, no, I mean, I was, I was on the radio. So sure, yeah. I could, I had a voice. I could sight read. I could do that. I loved reading. That's important. And so, um, when I'm looking for something to do that's, that can make me feel good and sense of I'm doing this for the, for charity, for uh, blind and partially sighted people, then, um, you know, I'll enjoy it. And I, I really did enjoy it. It was great fun. Um, and, and I think that's sort of, yes, that feeds into it. Well, and, and I imagine, or I'm going to assume a couple of things about, you know, working as a radio presenter, that there may not always be a lot of time to prepare, you know, there may not be the weeks that you would like to prepare what you're going to read on the radio. And so there's uh, a need for this kind of quick turnaround. And how do you make this make sense and be expressive and be clear? And, and of course, your, uh, you know, nine-year-old elocution lessons are coming back into play, uh, I'm, I'm sure, mm-hmm. to some degree. Um, and, and so was it what you learned? Uh, or I guess maybe the question is, what do you feel like you did learn uh, working in radio that about both BBC Brighton and London that helped inform maybe just to begin like the uh, reading the books for the blind in terms of your your style or your abilities mm. you know you know those, those kinds of things well it's interesting yeah I, to me I've always said audiobooks was the culmination of the, the perfect sure. wave yeah several things from in my life came together at the right time or at least you know filtered through and and contributed you know you talk about the elocution lessons yes absolutely because I had I was taught breath control the mm. ribs the diaphragm and right. all that at the age of 10 11 12 um and I was just, I was coaching somebody, having said I don't coach much. There was somebody who'd won a, an hour's coaching with me. And it was clear to me that one of the issues was it was too breathy. She was talking too much. And so 
she was um, having to uh, stop too often or, or change mm-hmm. tack in the middle of sentences and stuff because she had to take a breath and so on and so forth. And I, I, I realized how important it was, how, how I mean, you, you know generally, but it just emphasized to me that breath control is something that some people actually have to learn now. It's right. not something people grow up with, which is in a sense, I did. I can read right. and I can, you know, fill from the bottom of my lungs and I can push the last few ounces out without it sounding like I'm out of breath. Um, sure. Usually. Anyway, um, but it's, uh, uh, yeah, all those things. So whether radio itself, I mean, the transition from radio to voiceover in California, which happened in 92, I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, w- that was a little difficult because I used to read scripts like scripts. You know, I throw in a newsreader and I read it like a newsreader. And of course, you don't want to read a voiceover scripts like a newsreader because it sounds artificial. It, right. What worked as a newsreader didn't work as a casual voice actor. And that's something that took me years to overcome. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like to think I've overcome it now. But I, I can listen. There's There's a couple of books on Audible that were part of my R&IB days because um, the Royal National Institute for the Mind, they call themselves something else now. I can't remember what it is, but um, R&IB is what they were. They sold a lot of the tapes to Audible, and I got a couple of hundred quid out of it, I think. But um, only two of mine were used, um, and I made them put them under a different name. Because, but you go back and you listen to those, and that's me in the mid-1980s, and I... Mm. I think I sound terrible. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's a couple of, what was it, Robert Heinlein. If people, I'm not em- too embarrassed. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. under my name. But if you look back under Robert Heinlein, sure. um, Heliconia, there's two of them. One is, the first one was done by my friend Chris when he was doing audiobooks. And mm-hmm. then I did okay. the second and third. So Heliconia, spring, summer, and winter, I think. Um, but you'll, you'll listen to a, you know, 35 years younger me. And it's, um, it's a little more, tight <laughs> put it that okay, way a little it, more a little more uh, proper um a lot a lot more relaxed now right well you okay so you you, you bring up the transition to the u.s and I, and I think that's a good place for us to kind of get into that that and maybe you want to highlight a, a few of the reasons why you decided to move continents and not just you know to like new york but mm. you know past that all the way to california um <laughs> you know uh so yeah what was the was acting or anything on the horizon of part of your move to the U.S.? Yeah. Well, I, I got divorced. Actually, mm-hmm. I think finally divorced in 88. Okay. But I've told that that sort of, I want to be an actor. So a friend who I'd done some musicals with back in 1980 in Brighton called me. He was doing some musicals in London. It was still so-called amateur theater. It was a bigger theater company, the LT Players, London Transport Players. It had nothing to do with London Transport, that they sponsored it. Anyway, they were doing um, a Kiss Me Kate, mm, okay. uh, the musical Kiss Me Kate. And one of the gangsters had dropped out at the last minute. And this guy said, I'll give Simon a call. Well, it came at the right time because I'd been putting him off doing anything because I was so committed to Radio 4. And at this point, I'd decided I, I'm going to do acting. And when he called, I was like, well, I'm sort of middle of this divorce. I, I want to do have some fun. So I stepped into the role and had the song Brush Up Your Shakespeare and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and people loved it. And I loved it. And it was great fun. And the uh, the ingenue in that became my second wife, ultimately. Uh-huh. Um, and she happened to be American. Um, she was, she'd been over. She'd been married for three years. Her marriage had just broken up. My marriage was just breaking up um, or had just broken up. It was 1988. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the divorce came through the end of 88. I did this show. 
and uh, I did a couple more shows with them and her, and we hooked up, and we actually had a child before we got married. I was born in 1990. Um, in uh, 19... She worked for an advertising company in London, Saatchi and Saatchi, and one of her clients was Cunard, so she was... Um, as part of a business, she had to do a trip on Cunard, had to do a trip on Cunard from London to New York and then fly back. And she said, would I like to join her as a, her paid assistant? Mm. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, I did. And we had a lovely time. And while we were in New York, I thought, you know, I could live here. And, and in the meantime, another thing, there's so many different strands. For three years in a row, I had applied to the Guildford School of Music and Drama just mm, outside right. London. Not one of the big ones. It wasn't Rad or Lambda or Central, right. but it was a pretty well thought of school. And I'd, actually, I, I'd applied for their postgraduate course. And I, I'd been accepted three years in a row, but I couldn't go because I was paid too much and I had a mortgage and mm -hmm. I didn't want to leave the BBC at that point, but I really wanted to be an actor. Um, so uh, I remember my second wife, Diana, then when she told me she was pregnant, she said, no, you will still be an actor. You will still do this. This is your dream, even though I'm going to tell you I'm pregnant. And I'm like, yeah, what? Mm? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So that kind of made it even more difficult to give up a well-paying job to become an actor. Right. But what we did do, she was American. She wanted to go back to she, her family lived in Berkeley and wanted to come back because her parents were elderly. She wanted to be back here mm -hmm. um, in their final years. And, um, and I thought, and, and as at Saatchi and Saatchi, in um, market research in the States, she knew she could get, get paid about three times as much as she would in England. Mm, well, wow. here's the answer. Let's move to California, where, of course, all the actors are um, and uh, and all the work is, and she will support me in my acting. So that was 19... Uh, and in 1991, we saw New York, and I thought I could, I could live here. So we actually ended up moving in 1992. And it's true. She made a lot more money. I made next to nothing, and that <laughs> caused enormous problems in our marriage, <laughs> which is why she's only my second wife. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, it was a difficult, you know, the power structure in a relationship is often a difficult thing, and it yeah. kind of went a little bit skewy, and, and you know, I probably misbehaved, and um, so many other things happened, which we won't get into here. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but um, yes, if I wanted to be an actor, absolutely, I should have gone to New York, or I should have gone to Los Angeles, mm -hmm. but we ended up in San Francisco area, right? and... And there was work there, and I worked in a lot of theatres, the smaller theatres. I did auditions for the bigger ones, but never quite cracked it. But at the same time, that's where her brother knew someone who'd worked for Blackstone Audiobooks, David mm. Case, sadly okay. passed now. But he, uh, he, he introduced me, they took me on, and I started to get paid, because all actors need a day job, and that right. actually became my day job, which is great, because... Most actors don't have performing as part of their day right. job. They have a sort of an office structure or something like that. But I had, I had a performing. So, you know, that's how that is how I transitioned into commercial audiobooks in California. And I do wonder, because of course in this country the the British accent is uh, so refined and amazing to our ears and and you know nothing can sound better than in a in a british in a posh british accent or, mm -hmm. or something like that but do you feel like i mean even as i asked the question you know do you feel like that 
aided you or helped you at all. You were saying that didn't seem to help at all in terms of the stage work uh, that, you know, you were this, um, you know, this actor with a, you know, authentic British accent. Uh, it just, it wasn't more just the connection and the relationships and your ability to do the work efficiently uh, and somewhat well uh, or, or well, but uh, not so much that you were a, a unique uh, product, I guess, or commodity. Well, I, I think it's no more than, um, you know, if you need a tall actor and you sure. pull from the group of tall actors or short actors or, you know, you need women for this role. So it's, we can only choose women. Uh, you know, there's a lot of British actor roles. And I think people prefer um, in an authentic voice than trying to do a bad accent. Uh, right. Un unless you're very talented. Um, I... Uh, I had, I had an interesting time, I, but it was, yeah, it was all British plays over here. Um, I did get cast. They wanted me to be um, uh, an understudy at Berkeley Rep, which would have been a great break in there, but mm -hmm. they didn't pay their understudies under equity contracts. Uh -huh. And because I was a member of British Equity, um, well, I, I, I didn't know that, but I came in and they would, I did my week of, I, mean, I was learning all the lines to understudy uh, character in uh, some British play, an old coward play. And... Um, they got the call from um, equity saying you you have to pay him equity rates because he's a member of British Equity. So they had to let me go. And that was the nearest I sort of got to being cast on the big stage like that. Mm -hmm. I did um, Marin uh, Theatre, yep. Theatre Works and Marin Theatre Company and a few other middle range stuff and a lot of other stuff. And I had a really good year in 1995. I think I worked every week of the year. Um, it was great fun. So theatre was going really well. But at, <laughs> at that time, the marriage broke up. So... Um, you know, that threw me again for a, a bit of a spin. And at the same time, which was um, 96, 97, the audiobook business was in a bit of a dip. So things were hard for a while. I actually did consider, let's see, well, that was a little later because I'd already met Cynthia then, but I'd already, I divorced and things were in a bit of a dive. And uh, I applied to um, a big workshop for airline crew air crew oh, just right. as a you know as, as a steward <laughs> too late to be a pilot um yeah. and uh but i loved flying and traveling so that would have helped but um uh i did that i also applied for and got a job as a delivering newspapers i mean this was really deep down bad you know bad divorce yeah, yeah, yeah. heading into bankruptcy which happened um I applied for this the job and actually got it, went through all the drug tests to deliver papers, but I, I woke up the morning I was supposed to be at the delivery place and I said, I can't, I'm not coming, goodbye. Mm. I just couldn't do that to myself. I couldn't, you know, the days of getting a proper job seemed a long way behind me. Right. And so whether it was, um, you know, laziness and, and desire not to be working under somebody or whether it was the true passion of the artist, one or the other thing kept me from doing that. And, uh, you know, I, I struggled along for a couple more months and so on. I was in, uh, I was in depression. Um, I was treated, um, and then in the middle of that, I did a play, uh, did Betrayal, oh, which yeah, has been sure. revived on Broadway with Tom Hiddleston. Um, yeah, I did Betrayal, and uh, it was happened to be with an English, another English guy I knew, who is the parent of the godchild I visit in England mm -hmm. and um, Cynthia who became my third wife and we've been married now for 18 years in October so that one worked um, <laughs> I'm not a complete failure on that front <laughs> there were moments when you wonder um, but uh, yeah the three of us did the play we had a such a fantastic time we then uh, remounted it ourselves in San Francisco and, and we we did a lot of theatre together and as I say we got married in 2001 wow 
Well, what I what I really appreciate hearing it's it's I can't I won't characterize it as like oh it's it's great to hear about all these things not working out but you know that you were <laughs> and you weren't old you know you were maybe uh, around forty I'm guessing but what I think is uh, I will say maybe refreshing or important to hear is that it wasn't just this constant upward trajectory of your life and career that there hmm. were a lot of. There were a lot of valleys and that, mm-hmm. you know, still, you know, trying to figure out what is this, where, what, what's the direction I'm going in? What, what is going to become of this? Where is this going? Am I ever going to make any money doing this? What am I doing? You know, I, I, I think it's, yeah. I think it's helpful it's for people to hear that, like, those questions aren't, um, specific to your, like your twenties or your thirties, uh, and that, you know, no. it, it can, it can come up, uh, at any time. No, it would have been nice to have been an overnight <laughs> sensation in my 20s um, uh, and had a sort of a regular path. But even then, I'm sure there's ups and downs. But right. no, it was a, you know, moving countries was way more drastic than I expected it to be mm, yeah. because we are that, uh, you know, we're two nations divided by a common language. And the 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 we speak different, it may be a common language, but actually do a lot of different things with it and the way our families work together the right. way our communities work together the kind of support networks we have and i came over to the states only knowing my wife and her family right. so i had no support network um and there's a sort of there's a there's many differences and i've not necessarily explored all of them but that make it difficult when you're having difficulty in in another country that make it hard to uh, to to sort of draw yourself out of it i mean ultimately it sounds terrible, but, you know, sitting at home watching daytime TV and ended up seeing a Tony Robbins promotional thing and, and getting his uh, a pile of tapes right. um, yeah, and sure. then listening to those and working through those and going, oh, OK, that pulled me out. In the end, you know, I was on, as I said, Prozac for about 18 months, but I mm-hmm. took myself off Prozac, which is very dangerous. Don't try that at home. So they say. Anyway, doctors don't like you to do that kind of yeah. thing. But I, I pulled myself off it because my life was better and i i did it gently and i did it under some form of guidance with mm-hmm. therapists and so on. but but i um it it was very easy to see how slippery how close we are to to sort of falling off the edge as it were and how often we need to sort of reground ourselves and for me and it, it may have been it was partly out of the tony robbins stuff but it was a sort of sense that there are things you need to do like getting up and putting one leg into your trousers and then the other leg. You can't put both in at once. The things you need to do the right way. Right. Uh, and that still informs what I do now. You know, having a system to work, the way I work my books, the way I uh, live certain parts of my life, which are a lot... It, it, you may think it clashes with the idea of me saying I'm sort of wild and free and I do experimental stuff, but I still get out. I like every... I like to run... Uh, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I go out to run. Hmm. I, um, I've, I've got a lot of birds feeders outside because I love watching the birds. I find that very mentally, um, satisfying and those need filling. And there are, we've been in this new house for two and a half years and we've put a lot of plants in and roses. And I, I water those. Um, I'd say religiously, but I'm not religious, but, uh, <laughs> I do it, you know, in a regular way and right. things like that, things that need to be done. Um, uh, those things really help ground you when everything else around you seems so crazy. And these days, of course, because politics as well, but it's, right. it, there are things you need to sort of look at closer to home and go, okay. And especially if you are doing a lot of performing, you know, because that can turn your mind. And when you come back and go, I've still got to water the roses, that can give you a kind of stability that allows you to go off and right. do 
weird and wonderful stuff. You, you, yeah, I was I was thinking the other day because I um, I was doing this. Uh, I'm, I'm working on this staged reading of, of King Lear, and you know I'm I'm enjoying working on it and all that kind of stuff. And the, and I had this thought. And I was like, well, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to come home to the dog who will have had mm-hmm. no idea that I did King Lear. Won't it won't even matter to him, and he'll just want to go outside or play or something like that. You know that it's just yep. these things that are totally unrelated that yeah. have nothing to do with your artistic pursuits or you know. And and as much as you as easy it can as it can be to get caught up in those things, uh, you know. And I won't say like the self importance of what you're doing, but you know you can just get wrapped up in oh, yeah. in what you want to do and and what you know how you want it to be. And then exactly you come back to the birds or the roses or the dog, and it's just like oh right this you know. yeah. And I think it's good to hold on to those things, even when things are going absolutely brilliantly, yes. because then you come back to the, the desert of, of unemployment or something like that, and you the dog still needs feeding and yes. stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, I get things. I, there are times I find myself spinning off into areas. You know, I did a I did Rod Stewart's autobiography several years oh, yes, ago, yeah. and he, he ended up calling me and uh, saying how much he liked it, and we ended up, we've been in touch since. And, oh, wow. Um, you know, within... Uh, I haven't seen him in a few years. I'm going to see him in a couple of weeks at the Hollywood Bowl. But he, um, you know, took us out, took my wife and I out for a meal on my wife's 50th birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like things like that. And yet then you have to come home and walk the roses <laughs> and you go, oh, but I want to, I want to hang with Rod. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I must be good. I must be something special about me because I'm hanging with Rod. Right. But, right. You know, there's not really. Yeah. Well, um, it sounded like from 2000, you know, and I know there's a lot we could dive into in terms of like, you know, how the audiobook career started to build. But, it, well, I guess one thing, and it sounds like it was around the production of Betrayal and, and maybe the early 2000s, was what do you feel like was the key turning point in your career? Was it was it the mindset shift to like the, all the Tony Robbins work and everything else you were doing personally or just your work ethic at that point? What do you feel that allowed things to kind of click into place well again i think all the rights all the building blocks were there all the foundations were laid and basically it was pretty much nothing to do with me in the sense that um you know i just did the work and and you just had to stay out of the way i (laughs) stayed out of the way and uh, and of course steve jobs invented the ipod Mm. and suddenly mp3s became easier to handle than this cds and tapes right and the industry started to to go and i'm i'm sort of you know it's like catching the wave as a surfer i was i was already there waiting for the wave to come not even knowing it was coming and it came so you know i'm in the first year i actually made a full year's income was i think 2005 um it was about that time when i said i've got to back off doing any theater because i didn't do a lot Mm -hmm. but it didn't pay very well and it required such a time thing and it was just uh, and also I'd been asked to go to New York a couple of times or or Seattle to record books, and I couldn't do that if I was, you know, committed to plays. So I need to keep my time free. So that was the point when I went, oh, I'll, you know, and 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 I've had to remind myself every so often, and and it's actually, you know, easier here because I'm now doing a lot of sort of training for theatre and stuff, or, or TV and film down here now. But in the Bay Area, up in San Francisco, when I quit doing theatre, um, I wasn't doing anything. Um, and while I love doing audiobooks and it was giving me a good income, it was filling my time. It was a little bit like how I felt in radio. It's a bit two dimensional. Mm-hmm. I want more. I, <laughs> I always want more. Um, <laughs> it's just the way I am. So, you know, I'm not satisfied with what I'm doing right now. I need to do other things and more things. And, and so when 
because uh, we were up in the Bay Area, my wife got a job at UC Irvine. She's in the drama department teaching voice and speech. And um, she would fly down from Oakland on Mondays and fly back on Thursdays. She did that for eight years. But then my youngest son uh, was old enough to go to college and uh, he was taking care of himself. So that's when we decided that I would come down. So eventually my wife and I might get to live together seven nights a week. And, uh, and I would also be able to leap into the TV and film industry down here as an addition to doing my audiobooks, which is sort of where you find me now, right, sure. making various adjustments because my initial enthusiasm was tempered somewhat by finding out how much I suck in front of the camera. <laughs> That's my opinion, not everybody's, but I don't believe anybody else. So basically, I, I suck. I'm working on not sucking. I'm working really hard on not sucking. And, and frankly, I'm probably putting myself down too much. That's my... Um, my tendency as a an Englishman, I think. Sure, but yeah. um, you know I'm, that's what I'm working on. So uh, the audiobooks fill my time, but I'm trying to pry spaces in that where I can do my other creative um, endeavors. Mm. Well, I want to ask about a few books in particular. I mean, there's mm. I think there's over a thousand at this point, so there's many to choose from. But what I'm what I'm very curious about are when you have worked on these well-known series uh, of books and, and, you know, we could take the, the James Bond books, which I know I, have through, I was reading, you know, on your site and stuff through rights are not really available. I think you can find, you know, clips on YouTube and things like that. But, um, but then also doing the Sherlock Holmes, which are in the public domain, um, you know, they're, they're, they're working on these well-known books that have such rabid fans uh, about them. And you can do your version of these books. And then, you know, I, I would I would also kind of be interested in your take on doing like the Millennium Series by Stieg Larsson, where it's not your version. It's the version. It's the audiobook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And so whether it's with, you know, the James Bond or Sherlock Holmes or the Millennium books, how do you deal with that pressure of, you know, doing these books justice, you know, to kind of use that phrase, and and not allowing that to get in your way or or second guess yourself of, oh well, you know, but I'm not I'm not Stephen Fry or I'm not you know Jim Dale or you know any of these other people that you know maybe have done or, or have had such a claim doing audiobooks, and it's not to say that yeah. you aren't of their level, but. <laughs> How do you not get in your own way about that? Because I'm sure you might not think think that way in in the booth while recording. Yeah, no. Um, I, gosh, it's a difficult question to answer. I'm not quite sure. I mean, I would think even Jim Dale and sure. even Fry have moments yes. of how how can I do this because this has been done so many times before. And and I think the thing is not to come at it and go, well, I'm better than them, which right. I'm sure Steve and Fry and <laughs> Jim Dale don't don't do. Although they are, you know, they are. They know they're the primo they're the top of the top um uh you don't think about it in that sense you 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 just go well this is me this is my right take on it now things like you know sherlock holmes i grew up with so many different versions in my head so many different ones across across mm-hmm. the board and and i basically just drew from all of them with my own take on who sherlock holmes is sure what i've yeah. learned from things and and i'm going from the original works so that informs it too, um, and and likewise with uh, with James Bond. I mean, you you've got so many different James Bonds, right? And how does how did they? How did uh, the later James Bonds go in thinking? How can I do this? You don't. You just you do what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, with Millennium, you know that was a 
you never know what books are going to go where. And I got Millennium, the first book, and that was great. The second book, I knew it was important. By the time the third book came out, and we're talking, what, eight, nine years ago or something, I'm, I am nervous. Mm. Not, be, not because there's, how am I going to do me again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it kind of is. It's like, oh my God, they like that. How am I going to do it? So, it's a funny thing. It's the opposite. Then, then I'm I'm not doing Sherlock Holmes and thinking how can I do a Sherlock Holmes because so many other people have done him well. It's how can I do this character because I've already done it well. <laughs> and I've still got to do it well again. It's sort of maintaining the standards. So the, I, I think it was partly. It, it didn't really come into come into me like that. It was more that you know there's so many more people are going to be listening. So there's a certain responsibility, and you kind of just have to go. Okay, it's just me. It's always only ever been me sitting in my cubicle recording the books. You know, I can remember when I was at the BBC, I did an attachment from Radio 4 mm-hmm. to BBC television continuity. Oh. So for six months, I was a voice on the BBC One and BBC Two television channels saying, you know, that was the news and now this. Um, and I did the one night um, when Dallas came back the new season after JR. Oh, yes. And I knew, you know, 20 million in England, 20 million people or something would be watching. So there was a sort of trepidation, but basically you just got to go, this is BBC One. And now Dallas or something or whatever. I don't know how I did. I didn't do it like that. Before. Right. Yes. But it's, um, th- that's sort of, you can't, you can't take yourself out of it. You've really got to immerse yourself in it. And you know, that's one of the reasons I think I've, you know, my personality quirk, why I've been so much better at audiobooks than I am um, on stage or in film or something, because I feel no pressure um, doing audiobooks beyond mm. that, what I mentioned, to say, oh, this is a popular series, I better get it right. right. For the most part, I know what I'm doing, um, and I'm not doing it to please anyone. I'm doing it to communicate the story. That's all it is for me. And that's what I'm trying to translate into when I'm auditioning on TV and film. I'm just telling the story. I don't get in there. Um, but it's, it's easier for me to do it telling the story. I'm not out to score points and become, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm auditioning for this book. I've got to get this book. I need it to make money. I'm just doing the book because this is my job. Um, and I heard somebody else talking about that. Uh, gosh, it was a, I think it was podcast that, um, Risa Brayman Garcia did, um, and she was talking about an actor she cast in something last year, uh, season, uh, fourth season of The Affair, and, and she said, all these mature actors coming in, they're all sort of 60 or 70 playing somebody's father, and she said, she asked the guy who got it, you know, what do you do when you go in and self-tape? And he said, well, I'm just doing the work. That's all it is. I know it's only a self-tape, but I'm just mm-hmm. doing the work. And that's the thing, you know, this, that's what I, th- is the mindset, I think, when any of these performance things, you, Again, we talked about not trying to please people, not trying to please the casting director, not right. trying to please your mother, not trying to please whoever pays the bills. You're just being as honest and as vulnerable and human as you can be. I brought it all the way back to that again, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about some of the other books that you've worked on, you actually sent over a couple samples because I was curious about what books have been challenging to you and, you know, there are many different levels. Books can be challenging, whether it's in terms of content or, you know, characters or accents. Um, but you actually sent over, uh, you know, and we can pick just one or, or if we want to talk about both, but you, uh, sent over a couple, I would say, of extremely challenging texts, uh, right off the bat. And, and actually one, one of them, uh, Jerusalem, 
I mean, that has an interesting backstory in terms of all the research you did, like what in what you did to get into the mindset of that book. So I don't know if you want to talk about the, you know, mm-hmm. the prep for, you know, just doing the book first or working on, you know, part of the text. I don't know what would make what would make it easier well, for you. And let me sort of take the, the expansive view of uh, when you say the sort of books I like and stuff like that. I mean, I do enjoy challenging books. I mean, um mm. Now, there's challenging and challenging. There are books that are badly written, and they're like trying to walk through mud, um, and I hate that. But um, and, and to be honest, uh, there's a lot more of those getting through now than used to be because every single book is being made into audio, and there aren't always gatekeepers. And, um, you know, a lot of books are self-published and so on and so forth. Right. And those, those, those get made into audiobooks too a lot of the time. Um, that's not a lot of fun, but there are some books... Um, and, and you mentioned these ones, Jerusalem. The other one uh, that I'd sent you was by the, the called the Wake. Yes, all kings north. Yes. And I, 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 you know, one of these. We won't do both of them, but that's a fascinating book as well. But let me go to Jerusalem first because that's Alan Moore, who is the uh, you know master of the graphic novel, or as he calls it, the comic. He loves the comics. So he was in the 80s sort of reinvented Swamp Thing, reinvented comics pretty much with Swamp Thing. And he's he wrote V for Vendetta, Watchmen and stuff right. like that. A lot of these things made into movies, which he totally disapproves of. <laughs> he's a he's a wonderful eccentric. And he's written a couple of books, one small one. And then a few years ago, he wrote this thing called Jerusalem, um, which is um, uh, it was about uh, 800, 900 pages or a thousand. I'd. And... Um, it's huge, and I got asked to do it, and I was a little bit sort of gobsmacked by this. That's an English expression, mm-hmm. um, and I I didn't know quite. Ooh, this is exciting. Um, I didn't think for a moment I couldn't do it, but I, I hadn't seen it by that time. Right, um, and I called. Um, I actually wondered who can I talk to about this because it's sort of a secret thing, but. Um, uh, I know Neil Gaiman, and I, I know he knew Alan Moore, and I just sent him off. I said, hey, guess what? They've asked me to do Alan Moore's book. And he was, like, so excited, and he said, do you want me to introduce you? I was like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I said, And he said, you should go over and meet him and spend some time with him because he always writes about – at that point, I didn't know what the book was about or anything. Mm. He always writes about Northampton, where he's lived all his life. He's very much a homebody and, and never moved anywhere, doesn't like traveling. And I thought, oh, well, that would be great, but I have no time in the world. I can't go. Uh, a couple of weeks later, I was in New York for, um, I think, the uh, Audio Publishers Conference, and there was a big poster because the Book Expo was up at the same time. Big poster of the huge face of this intimidating wizard called Alden Moore. And I thought, oh, my God, this is an important book. I really, really should do the work. And I looked at the calendar, and I saw I had four or five days available to me just before starting to do the book. So I actually had Neil get in touch with Alan, who then I, who then arranged that I could meet him. It was very complicated. But anyway, I flew out from San Francisco on the Monday, landed on the Tuesday, visited my younger son in Norfolk on the Tuesday night. Wednesday, I drove to Northampton and spent several hours with him, with Alan, as he wandered around Northampton, showing me all the places that were mentioned in the book. Wow. And a lot of telling me a lot of stories. We sat and had a coffee and stuff. And then I flew back home on a Thursday and I sat in the studio and started recording chapter one on a Friday. Wow. Because I only had a few weeks to get it done in. It's a 60 hour book. So I actually did it over a period of June. Was it 2016? I think um, I did it in that month. So I did pretty much a chapter a day because um, all the chapters were about two to three hours. 
There was one chapter I asked him about, and it's called "Round the Bend." Mm-hmm. Um, he t- the, the, this story, this book does a sort of sort of story behind it in places, but many of the chapters are written in the style of a certain writer, like um, Samuel Beckett or, okay. or others. And, um, and he had this one chapter written in the style of James Joyce, in, as in. I think it's Finnegan's Wake, the one that oh, you okay. find. It. So he, desc- Alan Moore, even before I seen the book, had said, "I've got this one chapter that's practically unreadable." <laughs> so I looked at him, and went, "Yes, yes, it's practically unreadable." I asked him about it, and he said, uh, "Well, the only advice I can give you is you could try doing it in an Irish accent." And and I don't know, you know, some listeners now may know James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, which is a, a terribly convoluted book that sort of be- is a big loop. It sort of ends. It, it ends with the sentence before the beginning, so you can read it in a circle if you want. But it also requires he, – he spent 10, 20 years writing it because it's so complicated in that he uses words and changes them so they send, sound the same as the word you were using, but they have a different meaning. Wow. And it just gets very dense. Um, and I, I mean, I've <laughs> – the first line, and it's about, it's called Round the Bend because his, his, James Joyce's daughter, Lucia, was in a mental asylum in Northampton. So everything in his book is about Northampton. Oh, wow. So Alan Moore wrote this chapter about an adventure that Lucia has escaping from the asylum, and he writes it in this James Joyce style. I'll just do the sentence, the first sentence or two. He says, Awake, Lucia gets up with a rising of delight. She is a puzzle, sure enough as all the nurses and the actors would affirm, but nibber a cross word these days, depending on her mendication and on every workin' Grimpill's progress, which sounds like gobbledygook to some extent, but it's if you, it's actually almost harder to read off the page than it is to right. hear it. Yeah, yeah, if I was sure. making it flow, because you know, awake Lucia got up with the rising of the light. She's a puzzle, puzzle, sure enough, as all the nurses and doctors would affirm, but never a crossword these days, depending on her medication and on every, I haven't quite worked out work in Grimple's progress, <laughs> but Pilgrim's progress is in there too, because right. it gets a lot of historical references in there too. But it, it was, so it's three hours of that. Wow. And I actually, that was the one time I had the director, call in on skype and listen to me and he listened to the first hour and said oh you're fine <laughs> left me to it and i wanted him to sort of I, I i mean it was okay by that time i was more confident but at the beginning i thought i don't know if i'm going to be able to read this so that it right. makes sense right yeah because yeah because there's not only not only the the accent uh and and applying that to the words but then also making sure that you're understanding the sentence and the meaning yeah. of it it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's like translating a foreign language to some degree of, and, and, yeah. you know, uh, even, tra- even good translations can miss subtleties of things. So it's like, yeah. you know, how are you, uh, I think I said in email when you uh, sent this to me, like I opened up these files and I, I immediately want to cry. I was just like, oh my God, if, you know, if I have to, and I have, I have to narrate this, I don't know what I'd do. Uh, and, and similarly, like with, um, the wake you said, I mean, the wake, I, I don't even, I don't even know. I don't even know. Well, what the fascinating thing about Paul King's North is he he created this language. The Wake is set shortly after the Norman invasion of Britain, in about uh, the invasion was ten sixty six. So this is this is set sort of a year or two later. Um, this fellow, he's he's a landowner, a, a villager in um, in Kent. And he's dealing with the changes, uh, uh, sort of the, the old religions, the new religions, the invaders, and all this stuff going on, and. The book is in a sort of train of thought. You know, it's just every, oh, okay. every thought without like punctuation. kind of stuff. Yeah, without punctuation. Right. Sometimes the lines are separated. Wow. Sometimes they're not. But he's also invented the language using 
some of Chaucer and some original works. Mm. Um, uh, now, you know, this one was, I mean, I can't even describe it. You have to see the page. Right, but, right, uh, right. It, you know, when you are presented with a paragraph which doesn't have any punctuation and it's a conversation with people um, and you have no no sense um, I mean, there's well, one here begins. I was no, I is a sockman of Holland, a part of the Shire of Lincoln, and it's spelt, you know, the Shire is spelt S C I R of Lincoln, which is the county, but it's L I N C Y L E N E, Lincoln, where the ground was black and good and deep, and that's D E O P. Wow. But so I did it with an old English accent, you know, our hum was an island in the fans, on all sides the wild, on all sides the dabchick, the water wolf, the leash, and the dirk waters. Our folk know in this place like we know in our wife man and our children. We know in fishing and fowling, the gathering of the leech. It might be lesh or something. I can't remember what I did there, but um you know, basically you make sense from it for the listener and it's actually easier for the listener than than somebody reading the page right. anyway we've gone straight off into this hole but it, <laughs> uh, to sum up i i love that kind of difficulty that kind of challenge i wouldn't want that all the time i'm doing a book now um just to jump sideways mm-hmm. called case white which is about the uh, german invasion of poland at the beginning of the second world war and it's actually wonderful but it's terribly dense mm-hmm. terribly dense um and it just lists constant, uh, you know, battalions and so on and so forth. There was something I was reading this morning uh, in the studio, and it was just so dense. And I thought, you know, are people actually going to listen to this? Because it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's so full of facts. And I've had to spend time with a Pole. Uh, got a lot of Polish pronunciations, um, a lot of German, a lot of Russian. But, you know, like with everything, and once I, I complained to a publisher because the book I was doing, I, I wasn't enjoying. I thought it was really badly written. And uh, the person I spoke to said, yeah, but it, it's got an audience. Mm-hmm. And that's something to bear in mind. Yeah. However bad you may think it is or difficult, there is an audience out there. And you owe them, um, you know, you, you, you want them to trust you that you're going to do a good job for their right. what they particularly want to hear. Well, and I mean, I know you said you tend to narrate a little bit quicker and, and, um, but I'm curious, you know, with a book like, uh, Jerusalem and, and not the entire thing, but maybe even the round the bend chapter, uh, or, or even other chapters, do you have a lot of time to prep or, or is it because of maybe your radio days or other training? Do you again feel like maybe not on the fly, but you are much quicker in terms of, getting things ready so that once you hit the booth, you know, you're ready to go. Yeah, I think my prep is quicker. Um, I mean, we definitely have to know what's in the book. Um, what we do is psych reading, but because you can never, unless you have a photographic memory, you never sort of know what's going to come up. So you're psych reading it, but you can't rely on that. You know, if you're telling a story, you need to know who the characters are and so on. So you need to have done the research. And of course, if you've got pronunciations, you need to have those all prepared. Um I think being a good narrator is about knowing that you can handle it. Mm. I think the same thing applies to any kind of performance. You know, I I don't get nervous about this. I sit down here. I know I can handle it. I'm nervous, actually. You know, my wife, I, I, I always warn her because I'm starting a new book. So I usually end up in a bad mood for the day before because I'm, I am nervous. There's a sort of a nervous energy that can take. I'm not sure if I'm going to get this right um, until I've done the first chapter. And I go, okay. Yeah, I got this. And I don't think there's any book 
trying to think. Um, probably if I've been asked, because there have been occasions when I've done recorded a book twice. I think I've recorded Treasure Island twice. So in those situations, well, I know this book. I know I'm going to be fine. But most sure. books, new books come in, I don't know. And even though I've done as much research as possible, I'm nervous. I don't know. Am I, you know, is this going to come out right? And I think it, it helps as a stimulus to make sure I get it right. I mean, I... I think it's like actors who probably they've played King Lear a hundred times. Right. I think they're still nervous the day that the night they go on is what's going to happen tonight. It, and again, so fascinating. And, and so I will use the word encouraging um, because, you know, if people feel insecure at any level of their career, that's normal. And, uh, you, you know, and, and here we're talking and, you know, I can read your accolades and go, OK, well, Simon is part of the Audible Hall of Fame, and he's an audiophile golden voice narrator, and, you know, he's done over a thousand books, and, uh, you know, he, he has many more people besides me to, you know, sing his praises and, and how amazing he is in all of his narration work, uh, and yet you're telling me that, you know, before you start a new book, you're you're still, you're going through that, pro that's your part of your process of, am I going to be able to pull this off? That it's, you know, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have said, you know, you can't get too sucked into what the awards mean. Um, no. That, uh, you know, if, if uh, the, the, the bad example of like, if they're up on the mantle, just kind of staring at you every day as you walk past, it's like, that's, that's not going to help. <laughs> I've got mine out. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I brought them out uh, to do a photo shoot a while back, but, uh, and they've, I've left them in the corner, in a corner, but they're very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing um, wrong with I, enjoying them. Yes. No, yeah. Uh, and there is a, I mean, you're absolutely right, but, and I don't know that there's ever a time that you, that one relaxes to the extent of going, yeah, I'm set for life. I mean, sure. you know, people go, oh, you know, you're going to be in work forever. But I got to tell you, there are times I don't, I'm not in work. You know, I, I've had a good year. I've had my best year probably since March, um, for several years. Um, prior to this year, well, I had a, many good years up to about 2011, 2013. And we don't need to go into the details, but, um, um, Audible were bought by Amazon who released a, boatload of books to the market to be recorded and everybody came in and it it kind of messed up the market people who shouldn't have been narrating did um and and all the good narration kind of got lost in this mass of um, mediocre narration now things have settled out in the last few years some wonderful narrators have come out of that which mm -hmm. of course scares the crap out of me because they're <laughs> all young and vibrant and i'm i'm sort of <laughs> winding down at the twilight of my career but the <laughs> but there's a you know, I don't take it for granted. You know, mm. I, I had a terrible um, November, December, January. Now I went away for several weeks in the middle of that and stuff, you know, Christmas and so on. So there's a natural swing in the publishing cycle, but it's been solid since March mm. and I'm booked for a few weeks ahead now and it's great. Um, and I, I would love, and, and I know people say to me, oh, you know, you are booked up. Uh, I'm sure you'll be fine. Everybody knows you and stuff. But I think... You know, I, I hear people say, well, we don't call Simon because I think he's busy. Um, oh, well, yeah. try me, try me. <laughs> um, you know, I know, was it John Cleese talking about, uh, you know, the career, the paths of a career? I'm sure other people have said it too, but you know, you, you get your job because you are who you are. And then somewhere along the way, people want a John Cleese type. Right. And, uh, and they eventually, you know, John Cleese himself ends up being out of work. And I, I sort of fear, I think there are, there are better narrators or, or really good narrators coming up. Mm. that are getting the good books that I a few years ago I would have got, probably because there were fewer narrators back in the day. Mm. Um, but also, you know, I may be not right in the same way as I was 
before. There are that many more narrators, many more people to choose from. Therefore, they can be more specific about getting the exact right voice for the book. Right. Um, and so there is a sense of, oh, you know, um, I may not be guaranteed work forever, um, but we'll see. You know, right. And, right. and in fact, part of me is going, part of me in my mind is thinking, well, that won't be a bad thing because I'll be able to devote more time to trying to get the TV and film work right now. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> be able to take time off and go and audition and study and do the rest of the things that I should be doing as well if I really want to succeed there. We've talked a little bit about the TV and film, and I, and I know you said you know you're you're taking classes and and you're always kind of on the lookout for a, a, you know the new challenge or something else. I mean, even though audiobooks are challenging, that's just getting out of your booth, doing something else. And has have your connections in the audiobook world helped at all with TV and film, or do you feel like you're you know quote unquote starting at the bottom or starting from scratch? Yeah, I I don't know. I I. I I don't think it's directly helped. Mm -hmm. um, I think it could. Uh, I know when I first met Risa doing a workshop uh, with her up in San Francisco, she came in one day and introduced the group. She came in the next day and said, I was talking to my husband. He's an audiobook fan. He says, you're the king of audiobooks. <laughs> now, when a, uh, an internationally famous casting director says, you're the king of audiobooks, you've got to think, well, I guess it helps a little bit. Right. Um, I mean, it hasn't actually helped me get any jobs. Sure. But, uh, and, and, and there's no way it can, but it might and probably has and may will do open doors for me. Right. Um, uh, it's not something, I mean, in fact, people tell me I should use it more or I should find a way to, you know, incorporate it in, you know, my my elevator pitch or something like that in some shape, way, shape or form. And I haven't really got a handle on that yet. But um, yeah, and I, yeah, and I think it's so fast. I mean, you know, you brought up the, the proactivity, uh, you know, topic earlier on that, Mm. that I, I think it's really interesting to talk to you at this point in your life because, you know, you're not someone that is um, planning to just do the same thing he has been doing and has had a lot of success in, that you're now trying something else and you're on that learning curve uh, that I think a lot of mm. uh, new actors are on of like, okay, now that the industry is totally different and it's opened up so that any, you know, there's almost no barrier to entry in terms of doing your own project or getting noticed, um, you know, things that might have worked 30 or 40 years ago, they don't work the same way. And so now you're kind of in that cohort. You're in that group of, okay, you want to start or resume, I, I guess we'd say, your on-camera work because, you know, you had done some up in the Bay Area. And so just, you know, the, the challenges that you're finding of, okay, how do you navigate this almost new world? Because obviously, like, there's so many ways you can specialize as an actor uh, yeah. and, and doing on-camera stuff is uh, very different. In terms of the business of it, uh, you know, from from audiobooks. So it's, you know, are are there specific challenges you're finding that we haven't uh, uh, addressed yet in terms of the on camera stuff, or um, do do you feel like you have a good handle of like what you do need to do to be proactive? Yeah, I think I've got a good handle on what I do need to do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not doing it. Um, I, it's funny. I am not. Well, it's also, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's, it's, it's also a tough thing because I think, you know, you're also in the situation where you have audiobook work. And so it's, mm. it's kind of like the person who has a day job where it's like, okay, how do they, how do they know when to make that leap? Now, obviously, if you have no books mm. coming in, that's a great time for you to do all of the, the acting stuff, uh, the on camera stuff. But yeah, it's that, it's that dance of like, okay, when, when do I make that jump and when do I devote all the time to doing the things that I know I need to do? 
Well, it's, I mean, it's an excellent problem to have, and there's probably right. a, a, a hundreds of thousands of actors out there who wish they could be in my <laughs> position. Um, so I'm, I'm aware of that responsibility. I can see you looking at me. But it's, um, it, it, it's, it, it is difficult, uh, and, and part of it is exacerbated because of my own personality. I'm not... I've not had to be that proactive. I do fund things. I do, you know, I'll take on things. But the best opportunities have often happened because people have said, hey, Simon, why didn't you do this? Yeah. Last year, beginning of last year, I hosted the Audis Awards, mm. which was a huge thing because they get sort of B or C list. I'm not sure where they, where they come from. They list personalities to do things. I, I'm sure they try to get A list. But they, people dropped out last year at the last minute. And three weeks before the show, I was asked to do it. And I've never done anything like that before. Wow. And I think it went very well. It's on YouTube. You could mm-hmm. search up the tw- the audience last year. But um, I, I, it was okay. I mean, not my job, but it was fun. And I did it. Um and it's, there's always that kind of hope. And we all joke about the phone call from Spielberg. Wouldn't it be nice? I mean, you're sitting at home. Spielberg, oh, Simon, would you come in? I'd like to talk to you about a movie. That's that's sort of my ideal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is, unless Spielberg, if, Stephen, if you're listening, um, if, you know, if it happened like that, would be great. But I'm very aware that even with my audiobook career behind me, I've got to get up and I've got to get out and I've got to do other work. I've got to right. make my own self tapes. I mean, I've got to, you know, make a reel uh, because all the stuff that I've got is so ancient. So I've got to somehow, you know, either I get out there and, and go to the, um, you know, casting directors, right. um, drop headshots off and just start networking a little bit more and get out and a bit more, um, get myself in front of people or all those things where in the old days and, and, and everybody knows this has gone past people used to rely on oh you know if i can persuade an agent to take me then basically i'm sitting there waiting for my agent to call, right, right um with the call from spielberg but you know we'll, it's not happening like that yeah. um an agent isn't essential um what does tend to be more important is producing material getting a youtube right, videos right. out there um writing your own stuff i mean that's huge um and i have to say i maybe i'm plugging pgb studios too much but they you know risa talks about getting all the students really talented actors to write because they're really good writers and to direct their own stuff really good directors covering all the bases instead of the whole you know 40s and 50s hollywood where you you're an actor you sign on the dotted line and you got work for a year um it doesn't work like that yeah you've got to get up and get out and i know that and i keep beating myself up about it i'm doing it now by you know i know this i know this is essential but i have poor me i've got audiobook work (laughs) (laughs) which sort of pays the bills wouldn't it be nice to get a tv series or even you know a guest star or something. Maybe there's, uh, you know what? Maybe, maybe there's some kind of original project you'll end up writing about some kind of, uh, you know, audiobook narrator that, that it'll be, it'll be an on screen project that, you know, you write some treatment of, about uh, a late in life audiobook narrator who wants to, uh, you know, become a pilot or something. I'll do a dark mirror episode where he's shut in his cubicle and ends up talking to a guy on a podcast for hour after hour and can't stop. There you go. <laughs> I'm riveted. Now, now I want to see that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, j- just a few more questions because I mean, this has been great. We've been, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, you had mentioned the audio awards and I, and I know you've, you know, earned a lot of accolades. I was curious, is there, one uh, award that you felt, you know, that felt particularly rewarding in terms of like you knew you would put a tremendous amount of work in and and felt like that was recognized or is that every award or was there one in particular? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
every award is a joy and often a surprise because I put a lot of work into all of them. I don't think... Um, I mean, I think if I'm going to pick one out, mm-hmm. it would be the Jerusalem Audio Award for for best solo yeah. male um, narration of that year. And I think partly because I put the work in. So many of the mean stuff to me. I mean, so many books that I've done that have have gained me friendships and books that haven't won awards that I absolutely adore, um, or adored, adored the process and and the friendships it gained me. Because you know, I keep in touch with the sure. with authors down the down the line, and of course, Rod Stewart's autobiography. Mention that again, because um, that gave me a connection. You know, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think that one meant the most because of what I put into it. Well, I wasn't expecting to shoot off. I wasn't expecting to get the book. I wasn't expecting to shoot off to England for right. four days and make, you know, make friends with Alan, Alan Moore. Um, it's, uh, that I think that's, that's the big one for me. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I've got a lot, I, I mean, in terms of, uh, I've always had a soft spot for audiophile magazine and they made me a golden voice. And this last year they presented us all, um, a sort of celebration of golden voices through the ages with a little sort of gold award. Mm-hmm. Previously, there wasn't really an award, but, um, you know, they gave us, it's, it's kind of, it's way smaller than the, the the obelisk that is the Audible Hall of Fame, which is great in itself. But I think that one, because Audiophile magazine's been around from the start, mm-hmm. um, and they're a, they're a wonderful magazine, um, Audiophile with an F, uh, if you're looking for it. And right. um, it, it's just, I love the people there. The editor, Robin Witten's a dear friend now, um, and as I've known her for years. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think that that those two, Jerusalem and the Golden Voices from Audiophile. Cool. Now, all right. As as a Brit, I am I am curious to know what would you say is the craziest thing you ever did for your career? Was it a way you pursued something or anything else like that? Because you know we we you know you 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 even sound you know very uh, very proper uh, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, as we've talked about, there's there's a wild presence in there. So I'm just curious and, and because I think, again that kind of speaks to the proactivity needed. You know, even introverts if they want to be successful, need to go out and do something. So I'm curious, is there, do you have any stories of that, of like something that you just did that you look back and you're like, wow, I really, uh, I didn't hold back on that one. <laughs> well, um, it always astonishes me that I did musicals back in the day. I've never thought of myself as a singer <laughs> or dancer. And if you ever saw um, them, you'd know I wasn't. But um, I had a lot of fun doing those. And those were, again, amateur musicals, but I, put everything into them and had a lot of fun doing them um i don't think you know doing the again not for the career mm-hmm. never thinking about the career but doing the taking on the audience hosting yeah, yeah um, sure. that evening last year was was so out there for me to do that um was wild and yet i did um you know beyond that i mean these these books, when I'm given a book, it's not always, it's not my choice to take them on, like the Paul Kingsnorth book with his strange, ancient, old English language. Right. Uh, that's always like, my God, did I really do that? I Did I read a whole book like that? Looking at these pages, I sent you a, you know, a couple of <laughs> right, pages. Right, right. Wow, did I read a whole book like that? <laughs> how, how on earth did I do that? And there is a sort of, you do these things because they're in front of you. Right. Um, you're presented with them. Um, and And that's... The thing I think I need to get over is that I'm I'm capable of doing a lot, 
and sometimes I'm not doing that. I'm going to get down into therapy now. Um, how do I feel about that? Um, <laughs> I've got, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I have fun. I have to keep an eye on the bottom line. That's the business. I got to make sure I make my nut each month. Sure. Um, but I'm always on the lookout for other things that I can do. And, uh, I need to, uh, you know, teach myself the new tricks mm -hmm. that an old dog needs to get out there into the business. And some of those are not so challenging to a lot of people, but they're very challenging to me. And I think, you know, come back in a couple of years and right, tell me what, right. ask me the same question. I'll probably say, well, it was the time I, you know, I went across town and performed for this casting director and did this, that, and the other, and, right. you know, whatever. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, it, it, it may be that the uh, the crazy thing is ahead of you, you know, the the way that you'll break into, well, you know, have your break in the on-screen work. That's a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you do you read for fun? Do you have any time to read for fun? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been watching I, I, a lot of my spare time. I've been watching TV. I need, I'm trying to sure. ease myself out yeah. of that because so much good TV out yes. there. And I'm also watching for what would I fit in? Who, mm. who the cast yeah. director? Yeah, what sure. do I want to look at? You know, the usual jobs that we're supposed to do. Um, a few years ago, I found myself not reading for fun, and it was driving me crazy. And I somehow couldn't put a book in front of me and read it for fun just naturally in bed so i actually bought um there was a new copy of neil gaiman's sandman comic books so i got all those because it's pictures mm -hmm. <laughs> pictures and words and it's it's actually very intellectually stimulating because i i hadn't really connected with that and i've got a and i've 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 read quite a few of those actually i read the whole sandman thing um and i i pick up i've got <laughs> through Neil Gaiman again, I keep dropping his name, but he promoted, uh, Gene Wolfe was a dear friend of his and wrote the books of The New Sun years ago, fantasy, uh, science fiction fantasy, and they were put together in a new um, binding and I bought the set and I've got those by my bed, but I'm very slow, I'm, I'm very slow reading those, but I do read for fun and it's... Um, not as much as I'd like to, but I just don't have the time. Sure. You know, I'm out watering the plants. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to feed the birds. I'm waiting on a studio to be built. We've, uh, I've got a, uh, we've got a, a large plot at the bottom of the garden. I'm putting a studio shed. It's called a studio shed. It's sort of a building at the bottom of the garden, but we've had the, we're in the permits process for over six months now. It's driving me crazy. I'm looking forward to having that mm -hmm. as a place to go to work in. And to relax in away from the house, because in the house there's always things to be done, clearing up, tidying up, whatever. Um, and I'd like to be able to find some space to do those other things and uh, read more books perhaps down there. As, I mean, the studio is going to be down there as well, so I'll be doing that. But uh, a little more space to myself mm -hmm. would be nice. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, are there one or two books that you feel like have really impacted you personally and have been instrumental in your journey ah gosh i mean it, it, i have a very uh I don't, I don't know if it's add i've never been uh, you know nobody's ever said i am and i don't think i am i mean there's a sense of that because i like doing different things all the time but things sort of come in and they go out um i read a book and i love the book and i move on to the next book um if anything stayed with me, it stayed with me because of connections through the book, mm -hmm. like friendships I've made. I, I, I used to say, you know, people say, what's your favorite book? The Prestige by Christopher Priest. And mm. I still love the book. They made a movie of sure. it and sort of messed up the story. But yeah. um, I love the relationship I got with Christopher Priest from that book um, and a few other 
books are like that. And, and of course, Jerusalem sits front and center sure, of all those. Sure. Um, uh, I mean, I love all the Dickens. I love, I just love the feelings I get from books, from every single book. Even this very well-researched uh, book on the invasion of Poland. I'm learning so much from it. It's fascinating. And it all feeds in. You know, when I, I used to listen, as I say, to Radio 4 as a child, which was a news network, and I was a you know, 12, 13-year-old child. Mm-hmm. Um, my private school, when I was you know, 8, 9, they, Saturday morning class, one of the classes was um, current affairs. We brought in a newspaper. So I'm, I love learning about society, about, uh, you know, what's going on out there. Not so much now because it's really painful. But <laughs> what's going on in politics? But for the most part, I've loved to be up with current affairs and I love reading books and learning about what's going on and, and you know, in history and so on and so forth. But in terms of, of any particular one book, um, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I learn stuff from everything. I did a book on man's health. Mm-hmm years ago which told me how much you're meant to pee each time and it was like oh i don't think i do <laughs> but i'm not sure it's, it hasn't stayed with me for long right like, oh that's interesting i should learn that right and I said, yeah. oh, i've forgotten that uh well cool well uh, simon uh this has been fantastic thank you so much for your time really really appreciate it it's been it's been great to to learn more about you and hear more about your story you're welcome thanks very much nathan Hey guys, Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com for additional info and links for items mentioned in today's episode, as well as all the episodes. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All the links are on our site and in the episode notes. Become a premium member and enjoy additional benefits and perks of the show starting at just $2 per month. Head over to workingactorsjourney.com slash premium to join the Working Actors community. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agin, and enjoy the journey.